Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we've got a very special treat. Continuing our commitment to patient partnership in all things musculoskeletal care, we're joined by the indomitable Gilletta Belton, pain patient advocate and patient and public partnerships editor for JOSPT, and the indefatigable Professor Peter O'Sullivan, Professor of Physiotherapy at Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia, and physiotherapist at Body Logic Physiotherapy, also in Perth. Joe and Pete are tireless advocates for patient-centred care in the truest sense of the phrase. In today's episode, they're sharing tips and suggestions for how you can approach a clinical encounter with compassion, with empathy, and with confidence to best support the person who's asking for your help with their musculoskeletal problem. This chat's a bit of a reprise of a recent chat that three of us had at the World Physiotherapy Congress 2021. That session really resonated with the audience, and we hope that today's podcast will resonate with you too. Joe, Pete, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks so much, Claire. Today we're talking about managing the clinical encounter, managing the some of the challenging conversations, the emotions, and and getting into that discussion and and making it a fruitful discussion. So, Pete, can I start with you? Can I ask you to share with us how is it that you start a clinical encounter? For a number of years, I've kind of had had an approach to that encounter. Of course, you know the first thing you would do is some um, like say hello. Lovely to meet you, Claire. I wonder if you could share your story with me. And that's the first question. The reason I'd use that approach is usually in that first minute or two, you'll hear something really important. It might be something important about the beginning of the journey. It might be something important about their beliefs around their problem. It might be uh, something of the suffering that the person's had or the loss that they've had or the things that they've valued that what they used to be. So it may be something like, well, I used to be a really strong, fit, healthy person and now I feel broken. Like you'll hear something really important. And Joe, as someone who's seeking care, how does it feel to receive that invitation to tell your story? For me, actually the first time I ever was asked that was by Pete when I was a patient demo. And it was totally unexpected, but also it allowed me to share something that I didn't even know I was going to share because it wasn't focused on the reason that I was seeing him. It was more about me and what I shared was the thing that was most important to me and allowed me to start like making some of my own connections as to what was important to me that I hadn't necessarily verbalized before because we're often just told, tell me about your symptoms. When did they start? How long have they lasted? What do they feel like? And it's so focused on the body part that is hurting and not the person. It was also like a weight was lifted because for so long during my care, I didn't really feel heard or like anyone was listening to what, what I was saying or what was most concerning to me or the things that were most important to me. We always seemed to kind of veer to what was most important for the, the clinician or you know for the, the rehab program. But the, the program was always sort of disconnected from 
what I valued, what was important to me, what I wanted to address. What's the most important thing that you feel clinicians can do to help create that kind of safe environment where, because it is a vulnerable position to be invited to tell your story. So what can clinicians do to help create a safe environment where you can feel vulnerable and share that information? That that always starts with trust. And I think that to establish trust, just being a human to another human is where that begins. You know, I think we we act like the clinical encounter is totally different from all other human interactions and relationships and experiences. And it's not, it's still two humans coming together and, and having a conversation to try to figure out what's going on in the way forward. So I think going in with that mindset, like this is, this is a human being, you know, that is suffering right now. That is, that is struggling with something that is trying to make sense of what they are going through and find a way forward. So I think going in with that is, is a different approach than this is a puzzle I have to solve, or I have to tick all these boxes to, to meet the requirements for this session. Um, And that it probably doesn't take as long as people think that it does giving space and time to, for them to tell it without interrupting them. Um, Cause I think that that's a big one too. People want to like move them along to get to the important stuff without realizing that they're saying the important And Pete, I can see you nodding here while Joe's speaking. How do you create that safe environment? What are the ways that, how do you set up the clinic environment? How do you kind of create that safe place? Yeah, and I was thinking about it when you asked the question about um, environments where I have worked in that are not like that. You know, if you're in a curtained environment, (laughs) if you've got someone sitting literally to, you know, a a meter next to you behind a curtain, are you going to share it? Are you really going to share your story? You'd have to be really brave to do that. But I think we, you know, the other thing we often forget is that, you know, the majority of communication is nonverbal. It's about your, you know, engagement is that, that authenticity of genuine care for another person that you can, that we sniff, we can see that so quickly when we come to have an encounter with another human being. And that's the stuff that's so important. I think we end up training physios who are um, so worried about the checklist of filling in spots of managing their time of not running over or, you know, being fearful of what might happen in that encounter that, that you actually lose the sight of the person in front of you and, and you, you can't even hear the story even if it was told to you. And I, I think that's the one thing that really saddens me about what happens so often in health is that the number of times I hear someone said, you have, you are in the, in the first, in the last 40 years, you're the only one who's listened to me, who's actually listened to me. That is just wrong in healthcare. And Pete, we've got some folks listening who are early in their career and, and trying to figure out how to develop their own kind of sense as a clinician. And I think these kinds of conversations can feel pretty scary and it can be hard to know where do you start. So what would you recommend people do and and how do you start to kind of train yourself and and get more comfortable in having these kinds of conversations with patients? Yeah, I I kind of go with what yeah, you know, we often do role play and we'll go right, follow follow the tick box and then use open format questions and just use a few cues like tell me, you know, can you share your story with me? How did it begin? How does it feel? What are your what are your things going on? Uh, what's the impact this is having on your life? You know, what what are your goals? What are your what are your hopes for coming to see me today? 
but really simple open questions that open up this extraordinary wealth of information. And if you actually just practice those questions versus, right, what brought you in today? Where's your pain? Where is it now? What aggravates? What is it? You know, do you have any pain at night? Do you sip in the morning? Like those might be very useful questions that come out of like, how does it impact you? But how does it impact you then raises, it's impacting on every aspect of my life, my social life, my family life, my ability to work, my ability to sleep, my ability to um, manage just to think, you know, it opens this whole other space. Or what would your life be like if you didn't have pain now? How does that impact on you? Like those are questions that are just so important to let another person know you can that you're interested in listening. And it fills all the boxes really quickly. Yeah, and I think some of the work that you do with your colleagues and when you're training clinicians is, as you said, you do the role play, but it's also can be really powerful, I think, to record yourself as painful as it can feel to either listen to yourself or to watch yourself. That can be a great learning tool. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's why finding trusted, kind mentors who don't make you feel foolish. Part of the training that we've done is identified where um, a person may share something that's really sensitive or may break down and cry and the therapist crosses their arms and, and laughs and looks away and they don't even know they've done it until they go back and look at that video and they're the most important learning opportunity. So if we're not comfortable with dealing with emotion ourselves or with other people's emotions, we'll shut it down. And you won't get a second chance with patients. You don't get a chance next time to go there again. It's gone usually. So let me pick up on that. I'm going to come back in a moment to how you might use this information to shape your treatment programming. But I want to bring Joe into this discussion too. Joe, what's the most difficult aspects that you encounter when communicating with clinicians about your lived experience? Some of it is that those directed questions where it's very specific and you're, you're only expected to answer those questions. Like what, when did it start? What is the quality? Those sorts of things. Because then you're so limited in what you're able to say or what you feel like you're able to say. And like, I can't be here outside of this, this very specific set of questions. The most challenging thing for me was this constant sense that I had to prove that I was in pain, that I had to prove that I was experiencing all of these things because it is invisible. And it, and by the time I had gone through all of the therapies, you know, physical therapy and injections and surgery, I was supposed to be fixed by all of those things. So now there's nothing more that can be fixed. There's nothing more that can be operated on all of those things. So I felt like I was constantly having to prove to every clinician I saw that I was in pain. And part of that was not receiving any like acknowledgement of the difficulties that I had faced, the challenges that I had faced, like just saying like, man, that sounds hard. You know, that sounds really challenging. Like all of the losses that I faced over those years, I mean, I lost my career and in losing my career, I lost my identity. I was a firefighter when all of this started. And if you had asked me before to describe myself, that's how I would have answered. I would have said, I'm a firefighter. And to me, that encapsulated everything that I was. So then no longer being that thing, is so self and life upending. And that was never acknowledged in my care, just how hard that must be for a person. I mean, I lost my financial security, my, my future. Like I didn't have any sense of a viable future anymore. And there were so many things that worried me about this pain in my hip that were so much more than the pain in my hip. 
You know, it was how, like Pete said, how it impacted all of these other areas of my life. And then always having to feel like you have to prove yourself is essentially having to prove your worth as a human being, you know, your value as a human being. And that's a really difficult place to be in as well, because we have to constantly prove that we're worthy of care. I have to constantly prove that we're, we're deserving of care. Thanks so much for sharing, Joe. And I think what you've done is just to set up beautifully a segue to the next question to Pete, which would be, with all of this information, how do you then use it in a productive way and in a way that's going to help Joe or whoever the person is that's in front of you who's, you know, who has felt that they could be vulnerable, share that information, and then is, is asking for help? The worst thing you can do is leave someone just hanging there and then never acknowledge it or um, validate them and, you know, move on. And we know from the qualitative studies that physios are not comfortable with dealing with, you know, the emotional distress that comes inevitably when someone's in pain and can't engage with the stuff in life that gives them value. So I, I think we have to stop thinking around the examination as an interview, a physical examination and then a treatment. It's like the, the, the therapeutic space begins the moment you shake hands with the person that's non-COVID, you know, listen to their story, validate them, understand their goals. That is therapeutic. A person demonstrating emotion and being validated is therapeutic. We have to stop thinking about that as an interview. It is part of the therapeutic process. And then to, to, to then explore that even further through the physical examination to say, look, what are the things that, you know, are most troubling you? What are the things that you're frightened of? What are the things that you're avoiding? What are the things we need to examine? Um, because that is person-centered care. We end up doing these ridiculous tests and all these examination techniques, they have nothing to do with the patient's concerns. And what does it tell us? Giving a message that I haven't heard you. And so much of physio consultations are telling the person in, implicitly, I haven't heard your story. So there's no point interviewing someone and then going off on your own tangent, doing your own thing that you've been taught that has no relevance to the person's concern at all. And so at the end of that, of that interview and, you know, we were kind of like the examination process, I think you should better say to the person, what have you learned? Because actually at the end of that process, they should have learned something about their story that you can then help to reframe in a collaborative way. And, you know, what do you, you should know what their goals are, what their concerns are, what their main obstacles are, the impact that pain has had on their life, where they want to go, what their expectations are. And then together you map a path to get them on a journey to achieve their goals. And so often we spend our time treating a symptom that we know has no long-term benefit that doesn't get a person anywhere. How do you handle it when a patient closes down if you start to try to get into some of these emotional factors or, or what about if someone experiences a very strong emotion or perhaps if they disclose something that's traumatic? How do you handle those different scenarios? There are a number of thoughts that spring to mind with that question. One, of the, I suppose the first thing is that we screen everybody who walks in our door. So everyone would get like an honorable screening tool, um, which is a really helpful kind of a basic screen for, for, for me as a clinician. So I can see really quickly if this person has, um, you know, pain avoidance beliefs, highly, you know, high levels of uh, tension, anxiety, depression, et cetera, 
Although be careful with them because you can have someone who puts zeros through everything and it is clearly highly distressed. And that probably is a person who doesn't want to be stigmatized, I reckon. I think what that then allows, if the person, um, the worst thing you could do is a person who's clearly not distressed is go, so are you depressed? Are you anxious? That's terrible. But to ask them, you know, how's it, how does that impact on you? It sounds like you've had a really tough time. How's that been for you? Like you're opening that you're giving them an opportunity. If they shut that down, just roll, just roll through it. And it may not be until the second or third or the fourth consult that actually they open up because building that trust may have been broken so many times before they're not willing to share at that moment. And I think you just have to go, that is, that is about your patient's agenda, not my agenda. And it's their agenda that really matters. Yeah, so Joe, let me bring you back here, uh, back in on this point. So how can one kind of communicate that sense of this is about you, this is about your agenda? What sorts of tips would you share with clinicians for really, and we've kind of touched on this in a few different ways, but bringing it back to, you know, without making it feel like for you as the patient, you've got to solve the problem, but how can we build this how can we work on this together? Yeah. And I, I think so much of it just comes back to curiosity, like not just being curious about the person's pain or symptoms or, or problem that they're coming into, but being curious about the person and that will come through. Just understanding who they are in this moment, understanding who they were before this pain started and understanding where they want to go can inform so much of, of the way forward in terms of the therapeutic plan that has come up with. Pete has shared so many wonderful questions. And one that I love is like, what is worrying you the most? Like right now, what is worrying you the most? And it could be, you know, that this pain means that my hip is bone on bone and it's only going to get worse. And, you know, and I'm only 34, or it could be like, I'm never going to be able to work again. Like there could be so many things that come out of that, but it will clue the, the clinician into what really matters to that person. And some of those worries can be assuaged relatively easily, you know, through conversation, through sharing your expertise and knowledge and being able to point out things in, within their own life and story because you've listened to it that may challenge some of those worries in a way that they can see like, oh, you know, you're right. I don't have to be so, so worried and concerned about that. You don't have to fix the hard things that you hear. You don't have to fix the things that have happened in someone's past that were part of their journey to where they are now. You don't have to fix those things, but you can acknowledge them. Being able to acknowledge like how challenging and difficult those things are can relieve some of the weight from that person because like Pete said, there's so much stigma associated with pain. This isn't easy working with people who are living with pain, especially pain that has lasted a long time. Is hard because it is emotionally difficult for for anyone who has to hear these hard stories. So I think self-compassion for the clinicians is important too. And just recognizing this stuff is hard and that most of us aren't going to be good at it all of the time. I think that's some great advice. Thank you. I want to finish by coming back to Pete, you brought up the question or you suggested a question asking people, what have you learnt today? So I want to pick up on that theme. And Joe, I'd like to start with you and ask you, how has your understanding of pain evolved from that first episode of jumping off the fire truck to now? Early on, my beliefs, well, at first it, it wasn't really that big of a deal because it was just a twinge and then it kind of morphed into this 
this pain, but all of my beliefs, all of my understanding about pain at that time were that it has to be damaged. There has to be something really wrong in there. And that if it's damaged and you feel more pain, that has to mean that you're doing more damage to it. And over time, those beliefs become really, really limiting. Because if you're hurting all the time, then you feel like you're doing more damage to yourself all the time or more harm to yourself all the time. It starts to restrict the things that you're doing so that you're preventing that damage. And then I had those beliefs for a good three years going through kind of the traditional healthcare system and going through all of the treatments that I failed in the vernacular of healthcare. I was the failure, not the treatment. It was going back to school and, and learning about pain science that helped me to understand pain differently because I had never gotten a different explanation for pain. I was never disavowed of those damage-based beliefs about pain during my care. Understanding pain to be more complex and involving you know, all of the aspects and factors within your life in the context that you're within, being in the workers' compensation system, reflecting back, I realized how stressful that was. I realized how being so worried about my career and being able to go back to work and my financial security and my future, no wonder I was in so much pain and that it was elevated and I was like so ramped up and and my systems were in such protective mode because it wasn't just my hip that was threatened. It was my identity that was threatened, my future that was threatened, just my integrity as a person that was threatened by this pain. So understanding that, understanding the kind of complex nature of pain was really overwhelming at first, but then it also gave different ways into changing that experience too. It opened up possibilities for being able to get back to my life, to get back to the things that made me feel like myself, to reconnect with things in my life that mattered to me um, that I didn't feel like I had before when I had these very kind of damaged, destruction, dysfunctional, disordered beliefs about pain. And Pete, what's the most important thing that you've learned from the patients that you've worked with over your career as a physio? And I, I kind of share a similar journey to Joe in many ways in that if I, I look at where I began, it was, uh, you know, in my undergraduate training in New Zealand, it was very uh, McKinsey-orientated, posture, impairment-focused, structure-focused, and that was my whole mindset. Um, and I think my journey's been like a... Um, kind of painful revelation of understanding the complexity of pain. And a lot of it has been through patients who've seen that I think I'm genuine, I care, and have come back and told me that it's not working, have been brave enough to tell me stuff. And that's been incredibly helpful, but also uh, being surrounded by really honest, uh, questioning uh, researchers, clinicians who have helped me question myself and I'm naturally a very questioning person I'm pretty hard on myself probably and so I can think of so many tortured nights of just agonizing over patients who I just couldn't understand what the hell was going on and so I kind of feel like it's been a little bit of a painting that was all murky and it's just become clearer and clearer across my career to see this multi-dimensional nature of pain of course there's biology involved in anyone's pain and, and this it's great, you know, this idea of dichotomizing between bio and psychosocial drives me nuts because you cannot separate those two things. And, of course, there might be different biases within the individual. But I think uh, this emerging era of understanding of neuroscience, I think, is really helpful. But it is not necessarily how you work with a patient. But for a clinician, that's really helpful. Patients really just want simple things. They want to know what's going on. They want to be reassured it's nothing seriously damaging, life-threatening. 
They want a journey back to doing the stuff that they love. If we did that as a profession, if we just did that, and if we put it, put, you know, allowed the patient's agenda to take that, we would clean up a big old mess in the health system, I reckon. And I reckon that both of you are helping all of us move on a pretty good path towards doing that. I want to thank you both for all of the work that you do to help our broad, wonderful, diverse musculoskeletal rehab community. And thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.